want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. In today's episode, I want to discuss banks and the banking industry's business model. If you're listening to this podcast on YouTube, please like and hit the subscribe button so you can get more great investing videos. If you're listening to this on the podcast side of things, please be sure to subscribe, but also leave a rating and review. Your five-star ratings and reviews help me to grow the podcast audience. Thank you for listening, and let's dive right on in. So today's topic is how banks make money. As some of you may remember, one of my goals for this year is to improve my understanding of bank stocks. Today's podcast is going to focus on the basic business model that banks use to make money. So this is going to be one of the episodes in a series. It's not going to be concurrent, but as I learn more and more about banks this year, as I more refine my process of studying and analyzing banks, I'm going to document those understandings in the podcast, provide an episode so that you can follow along and you can learn with me. So we're going to talk about some key concepts in this show, including deposits, the cost of deposits, overhead, loan yields, loan losses, fractional reserve banking, and the basic formula for how banks make a profit. So I first want to begin by talking about kind of what led me to think about doing this as the episode for today. And I recently watched a movie um, on Apple TV Plus called The Banker. This was a really good movie. It's it's relatively new. I believe it was released in March of 2020. Um, and it's available for anyone who has the uh, Apple TV Plus streaming service. But this story is about two black entrepreneurs in the 1960s that buy two Texas banks. The entrepreneurs are played by Samuel L. Jackson and Anthony Mackie, two great actors, um, and was lar- those actors were largely the reason I chose to watch the movie, because um, I like some of the work that they've done before, and so I was interested to see how it would work in Apple TV Plus's new movie. And what I found was really a good gem of a show, and but the interesting piece is how the movie does a really good job of explaining the basic banking business model. You see, what happens in the movie is you have, and this is all spoiler free, um, this is the sort of thing that you'd see in the summary of the movie, so you feel free to watch it. I'm not going to spoil the movie. But basically, the movie follows the journey of these entrepreneurs as they attempt to buy these Texas banks, and you get to see the ensuing, ensuing blowback by Jim Crow. But from the very beginning of the movie, it shows 
the growing understanding of the entrepreneur, the main character, learning how banks make money. He's wanting to understand what it is that makes banks different. Why are banks a good investment? Why do banks earn profits? And he wants to learn that because he believes it will allow him to improve himself, to improve his future. And I think that's something that I can aspire to see in myself here. And many investors I know, they learn about investing, they learn about investing techniques as a way to improve themselves, as a way to you know, improve the lifestyle for their family, improve their standing in life, find ways to become better in some manner. Well, what's nice about how this movie portrays banks is it's focused on single branch banks. And this is very important because banks are the easiest to understand when you focus on a single branch bank instead of a large money center bank like JP Morgan or Wells Fargo. And this is critical because the bigger a bank is, the more branches it has, the more diverse operations they may be involved in. They might not be involved simply in bringing in deposits and making loans. They might be involved in all sorts of investment deals, um, intercontinental transactions, research, um, trust management, all sorts of things that expand the ways that a bank can make money but it also expands the risks of the bank. It expands the ways that banks can lose money. And one of the keys that you'll see when I talk through this, the rest of this show is that being very aware of the risks involved is critical because banks have to manage risk due to the leverage inherent in their business model. So I encourage you to watch the movie, The Banker. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a great movie. And I think it is a good example of how you can incorporate how sometimes a movie will incorporate nice investing concepts um, and the concepts behind a business model in a way that's really easy to understand and relatable for the audience. So if you enjoy um, historical movies, I think you'll enjoy The Banker. So let's dive into what The Banker's trying to explain, what this movie shows and what I'm trying to explain today. And here I just have the simple line that banking is the business of bringing in deposits and lending them out. So what a bank is trying to do at its core is they are trying to accept deposits from savers, you know, savers like you, me, um, the local mom and pop shop, the family trying to save up for a new house, all of these savers, the bank is trying to collect those savings They'll pay interest on those savings, and then they try to lend out those savings into loans at a higher interest rate. That's the core of the banking business model. It's very basic. It's very simple. They take in money from one source, and they lend the money about to other sources or even the same sources at a higher interest rate. So they're trying to make money on the gap between the interest rate that they pay to bring in deposits and the interest rate that they receive to lend out deposits. That's the banking business model. Now, as I said, you know, we could basically end the podcast there. You understand banks, but I want to dive into these steps a little deeper because 
The details matter on these banks. And as I said a few minutes ago, this is all easier to understand if you focus on a single branch. So what I'm going to encourage you to do at the end of the podcast, and what I encourage you to do now, is when if you want to build your experience in studying banks, go and pull annual reports for banks that operate a single branch. Don't go study JP Morgan. Don't study Wells Fargo. Don't study Bank of America. Those are complicated. Their annual reports are a lot more complicated. Find a bank that operates a single branch and read those annual reports. That will be how you can better learn and see these concepts in action. These are the banks that I'm learning on is I'm focusing on these small banks, and that's where I would encourage you to start as well. So let's dive into the concepts. So the first key concept is deposits. The lifeblood of a bank is deposits. When a bank tries to earn money, it needs deposits in order to do so. It cannot lend out money if it doesn't have money to lend. Now, there's other sources where you can receive money as a bank. You can get money from other banks. You can borrow from other banks and then lend that money out. You can borrow that money from basically the Federal Reserve, which is functioning like another bank, and lend that money out. Um, Small banks can't borrow from the Federal Reserve, but the larger banks can. That gets a little bit um, too advanced for the focus of this podcast. But the main concept is that your deposits are the source of your earnings. The more deposit a bank has, the more loans they can make. That's key. The more deposits the bank has, the more loans they can make. So if a bank wants to grow, then they need to grow the amount of deposits on their balance sheet. They need to have savers deposit more money into the bank. They need to encourage savers. So how do they do this? The common way for a single branch bank to do this is raise the amount of interest that they're going to pay on those deposits. Banks compete with other banks by adding interest rates to the deposits and paying the depositors money in order to keep their money there. So you're earning interest when you have your money in the bank. It might be small, might be large, but it's one of the levers that a bank uses to raise their amount of deposits. You have other other levers that many businesses have. They can market. You know, they can put out advertising in the local paper. They can say, "Hey, we have this new bank. We're over here. We're trying to um, encourage you to come." So not only are they going to offer you an interest rate, let's say two percent on your money in the bank or one percent on your money in the bank, they're going to advertise in the local paper and say, "Hey." You can earn money by putting your money into our bank. So the key concept there goes to this next one of cost of deposits. The bank needs deposits because they're the asset that they can lend against. But for a bank, deposits are a liability because they owe you the money. So like if I go to the bank and I deposit $1,000, it's really easy to think about this from the consumer point of view, but you need to switch your mind around and think about it from the bank's point of view when you're thinking about investing in banks. So from a consumer point of view, the money you have in a bank account is your asset. If you have a bank account with $1,000 in it, that's your asset. If you're doing a net worth statement, which I encourage everyone to do once a month, if you're doing a net worth statement on your balance sheet, you're gonna have assets and liabilities. Well, the liabilities for you are any loans you owe. Any money you owe, that's money that's going to be a negative for you on your balance sheet. 
But for you on your balance sheet, you're going to have assets and your assets might be an investment account. It might be a savings account at a bank. It might be a car, it might be a house. But the savings account at the bank is an asset for you and a liability for the bank. But that liability that the bank has, they can offset it with an asset of loans. So, but how do they get that liability and what is the cost? So the cost of the liability for the bank is the interest rate they pay on those deposits. So when a bank brings in deposits, they're going to pay out interest on them. Now, some accounts don't pay interest. Some checking accounts don't pay interest. Savings accounts generally do pay interest. So one of the aspects you'll do when you're analyzing a bank is what percentage of their deposits do they pay interest on? This is a key metric to be aware of. If you're not aware of the fact that the banks don't necessarily have to pay interest on all of their deposits, then you might not be able to recognize a key differentiator between banks. One of the benefits that shows a high quality bank that doesn't have to fight over price is one with a high percentage of deposits that don't pay interest. This would be a lot of checking accounts. This could be a lot of accounts with businesses. While consumers might focus on the interest rate they receive on their savings, a business might be less focused on the interest rate they receive and more focused on customer service. So when a business puts their savings account at the bank, they don't necessarily expect interest to be paid to them. This can be a very good way for the bank to lower their cost of deposits. So what you're looking for when you're trying to find banks to buy, you want to find banks that are able to grow their deposits on a compound rate over time. You want to see the deposits growing 3%, 5%, 7%, 10% every year. Um, now, it doesn't need to necessarily be um, stable. It can fluctuate with the economic cycle. You're going to have some years where saving rates are high. You're going to have some years where saving rates are low. So you're going to see deposits rise quickly during one portion of the economic cycle and rise slowly during another portion of the economic cycle. That's okay. Um, but the key thing is that over a period of time, over a 10, 20-year period of time, they're compounding their deposits through growth. The second thing you're going to want to look for is you're going to want to find banks with a low cost of deposits. These are banks that don't have to pay a lot of interest in order to earn deposits at their bank. That means that they're paying a lower rate than their peers for the deposits. So what does this mean? If you have, as a consumer, and you're looking around at banks, you have three banks to choose from. One's offering you 2% interest, one's offering you 1% interest, and the other one's offering you half a percent interest. Now, what's not helpful as the investor is if the consumer chooses the 2% interest bank. That's normal. The expected outcome is that the consumer is going to choose the bank with the highest interest rate. What you want to look for is when consumers put their money in the bank that offers a 0.5% interest rate, even when they know there's another bank with a 2% interest rate. You want to look for that and understand why, because that matters. That's going to tell you something that you need to dig into. It's a question mark, and it should say, hey, this bank is able to offer a lower interest rate 
Why is that? Are they offering better customer service? Is there better consumer satisfaction? Do they lock you in by also having those customers have the mortgage with them or their car loans, and so they don't want to switch banks every time the interest rate changes? What is it that allows this bank to offer a lower interest rate than other banks? And that's information that you want to understand. The second piece in terms of cost is not the direct cost of deposits, but the indirect cost. And that indirect cost is some can be called overhead. And I'm using this as a blanket term to cover all other non-interest costs for deposits. So in order to bring in deposits, maybe you need a branch location. So this is going to be, um, maybe you're going to have to pay a lease fee every month. Maybe you're going to have to pay a mortgage cost every month. Um, this would be the cost of employees, the cost of um, air conditioning, the cost of you know, advertising, the cost of everything that goes into bringing in deposits that's not directly related to the interest rate goes into this bucket called overhead. And so what you see is you have a two-part cost to deposits. You have the direct cost, interest rates, and you have the indirect cost, overhead, which is your people, your locations, um, any advertising, anything that goes along with that. And the combination of these two is the combined cost to bring in your deposits. And what you're going to want is that cost should be lower than the amount that you earn on the loans that you pay out or that you give out. Which brings us to our next section about loans. So the two key concepts here are loan yields and loan losses. We'll start with loan yields. Loan yields are the interest that the bank earns on a nominal basis from the loans that they issue. So if you were to get a mortgage today and you go to the bank and say, hey, I'd like to borrow $200,000 to buy a house. They're like, okay, they'll study your credit, they'll look at your assets, they'll look at your income, and then they'll say, we can offer you $200,000 at a 4% interest rate. That 4% interest rate is the loan yield to the bank. The bank will then earn 4% on the $200,000 or $8,000 a year. So when they make that loan, they're gonna, the bank will earn $8,000 a year as long as you make your payments. And that's $200,000 times 4% is $8,000. Now, if the bank brought in deposits at a 1% cost, what they're doing is they're able to make a difference on the difference between 1% and 4%. So they're paying interest of 1% in order to get $200,000 into their bank. And they're going to then earn 4% interest on that amount. So now they're going to have the difference. So 1% interest on $200,000 is $2,000 a year. 4% interest is $8,000 a year. The difference, that $6,000 a year difference, or 3% difference, is the spread that the bank is able to earn in profit. So if you make your payments, the bank is going to earn $6,000 in profit every year, assuming their cost of deposits is 1%. Now, that's one loan. That's one mortgage. Well, what about when the bank has 100 mortgages? Well... You might make your mortgage payment, but your neighbor might miss a mortgage payment, or they might 
default on their mortgage. So what happens then? And this brings in the concept of loan losses. Loan losses are very important because what a bank is not going to be able to always issue loans that are going to be paid back. They're going to do their best. They're going to look at credit. They're going to look at income. They're going to try to prevent default by figuring out who can afford to pay the money back and who cannot. But no bank is perfect, and it's impossible to be perfect over the sheer amount of loans that a bank will need to make. If a bank's making one loan, maybe they're able to to make a loan that doesn't default. But if a bank makes 10 million loans, some of those loans will default. And so the loan losses is how much the company expects to lose and what the default rate is on their loans. So here we can think about it in terms of instead of $200,000 in loans, let's go up to $200 million in loans and $200 million in deposits. So Let's use the same numbers. So if there's the if the bank has $200 million in loans and they're loaned out at a 4% interest rate, they're going to be receiving $8 million a year in revenue. They're going to be paying out $2 million a year in interest to their deposit holders because that's a 1% cost for their deposits. The difference between the $2 million in cost and the $8 million in revenue is $6 million in profit. Now, that's profit before losses. So now we have to consider, what are the loss rates? What percentage of those loans do they think they will default in any particular year? Here, a bank does their best to estimate it, but it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume a loss rate of 2%. If you say the bank thinks that 2% of their loans, 1 out of 50, is going to default in any particular year, then that means that they're going to have to take a charge off on their balance sheet or on their income statement estimating potential losses for the year each time that they accrue those across the year. So this is how some of the accounting works. It gets a little nitty-gritty detail, but the only piece that you need to understand is that the the bank isn't making the full gap between the 4% and the 1% as their income. They need to subtract their potential losses. So here, they're estimating potential losses at 2% in my example. So now we have 1% of interest cost 2% of loan losses, and 4% of yield. Well, the difference is 1%. So what we have is across this $200 million portfolio, they're earning $8 million in revenue. They subtract $2 million for interest costs that they have to pay out to, to deposit holders. And they subtract an additional they subtract an additional $4 million due to potential losses on the portfolio. This leaves them with a total of $2 million in profit instead of $6 million in profit because they had to take that additional $4 million in planned loan losses. So that covers loan losses. And if it was that simple, then banks would be fairly easy to understand for most people because you'd have 
simply understand the bank is trying to make loans at a higher rate than they pay in interest cost and at a and doing a good job of preventing loan losses. But it would be remiss for me to continue without touching on a very important concept called fractional reserve banking. And this is what leads to the leverage rate inherent in the business model. So fractional reserve banking is the concept that is allowed by the United States and other countries around the world for banks to not need 100% of their loans to be available as or 100% of their deposits to be available for making loans. So this idea is that in my example, I talked about having $200 million in deposits that would allow you to make $200 million in loans. In this example, you'd be able to earn that $2 million a year in profit which would be a return on assets of 1%. Well, the problem is, if there was no leverage allowed, if you needed $200 million in assets in order to make $200 million in loans, then your return on assets would equal your return on equity, which would mean in this example that your return on equity for owning this bank would be 1%. And a return on equity of 1% is terrible. As an investor, you should not be making investments in a company that has a return on equity as low as 1%. In fact, I think a minimum hurdle rate is 10%. And ideally, you'd target companies with returns on equity of over 15%. But 10% is a reasonable rate because your return on equity should be at least as high as your discount rate, as the rate required for you to earn your investments and to make a profit on them. What this means is your focus needs to be very focused. You should be highly focused on making sure to understand how companies can earn a high return on equity. And so that's what's important here for this business because your return on equity is equal to return on assets times leverage. And so what happens with the bank and what regulators have allowed is they allow banks to issue more loans than they have in deposits. So if you had in our example, $200 million in loans, you don't necessarily need $200 million in deposits. If you're leveraged up five times, maybe you only needed $40 million in in deposits. This means the regulators would allow the bank to make $200 million in loans, even though they they only have $40 million in deposits. That's a leverage ratio of five. And that would actually be very conservative and overcapitalized for most banks today. A much more normal and reasonable capitalization rate for a bank is a leverage ratio of 10. So they would be 10 times more leveraged on each of their loans. That means in order to make $200 million in loans, they would only need $20 million in deposits. Now, in this example then, your return on equity becomes 10 times your return on assets because you take the return on assets of 1% multiplied by the leverage rate of 10, and you get a return on equity of 
So now you have a bank that, because it can leverage up its balance sheet by tenfold, can start to earn a reasonable return on equity. And so you're going to see a lot of banks with a return on equity somewhere in this 10% range. Now, I'd like to still target banks that have a higher return on equity than that. Maybe banks that have a 15% or higher return on equity because it allows them to get better returns and it allows me to get better returns as an investor. But you only have two levers. You can either get that 15% rate by raising the leverage ratio. So you, instead of having 10 times leverage, maybe you have 15 times leverage. So then your 1% return on assets can turn into a 15% return on equity. Or you could have the return on assets go from 1% to 1.5% and keep the same 10 times leverage, which would give you a 15% return on equity because you'd have 1.5 times 10. But raising your return on assets as a bank is incredibly hard. There's pressure on your deposits to pay a higher interest rate to deposit holders at your bank because they want to earn money on their savings. There's constant pressure in your overhead. Employees want raises. They want to earn more money. Rent payments continue to go up. One of the ways that you might grow deposits is to open up more bank branches. That's why it's simplest to look at a single bank branch, but a common way to open up, get more deposits is to have multiple bank branches or have a lot of advertising and development put in, and you can open an online portal to your bank, and that costs more money in overhead. All those costs put a pressure, a downward pressure on the return on assets. At the same time, there's a downward pressure on the amount of money you can make in your loan yields. Or, because what happens is, let's go back to our example. I want a mortgage. Well, instead of simply going to talk to my local bank and only talk to one bank, I'm going to talk to three or five. Or with the advent of the internet, I might be able to shop hundreds of banks against each other to see that maybe I don't need to get a 4% interest rate on my loan. Maybe I can get a 3.5% interest rate on my mortgage. And that allows me to save $1,000 a year because I'm paying less money on my mortgage as far as interest. But if I, as the consumer, pays less money, that means the bank has a lower yield on their loans. And that half a percent in interest might only be $1,000 a year for me, but it could be 5% return on equity difference because your return on assets might drop by half a percent. And when you leverage that up 10 times and you go from a 1% return on asset to a 0.5% return on asset, well, now you have a return on equity of only 5%. And that's not a reasonable rate to return to earn in this business. Businesses have to compete with each other. The banks are competing with each other for loans. They banks compete with each other for deposits. So you have a constant downward pressure on the return on assets that trying to keep that number down, which is why you're unlikely to see banks with net worth um, returns on assets above 2%, 3%, 4%, because they're having to fight with each other for loans, they're having to fight with each other for deposits, and all of that is without taking into account that as you fight for the marginal customer, 
you're more likely to take on higher loan losses. So everyone wants to lend money to the people that have very high paying jobs and they only want a little bit of money on loans. But those are also likely to be the same customers that are going to demand the lowest interest rate. And so you have this constant battle as a bank to offer competitive prices, but also seek out the best people to give your loans to. But that forces the prices even lower. So it's this battle that the bank has to fight. So you might think, oh, well, this fractional reserve banking is kind of ridiculous. It allows banks to be risky because they've sent, they've given out $200 million in loans, but they only have $20 million in the bank. This is where the concern of bank runs came in, and it's why in the United States you have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or as many people know it, the FDIC, that insures bank depositors for their money in case the bank doesn't have it when it's requested, or in case the loan losses go up too high, then this Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation created by the government can come in and protect savers from not losing their money because the bank was too risky. This allows people to simply deposit their money in a bank and not worry about it and allows the economy to operate much smoother. But it also means that this reserve banking is critical to allow banks to operate in a manner that keeps them profitable and allows shareholders to make sufficient returns. I think this is an important point that's that really needs to be focused on because I know myself in the past have been really against the idea of fractional reserve banking. Why do banks basically get to create free money because they're creating loans out of what seems to be thin air? They're making loans on money that they don't necessarily have. And it's this idea that most people don't actually want to take their money out of the bank. Most people are allowed, you know, want to keep their money in the bank and simply use it to spend it on things and the money's moving from one bank to another. So the risk of an actual bank run is low and in, and since the FDIC was created, it is extremely low um, to the point that it's practically non-existent. It still exists and it certainly is a risk for bank investors, but it's not one I would spend much time worrying about for these prudently managed small banks that we're talking about today. So where does that leave us? Well, this leads us to the final point here on banking profits. And my formula for banking profits is very simple. Banking profits are equal to the loan yields minus the loan losses minus the cost of deposits minus overhead. So here, for cost of deposits, I, of course, mean the direct interest-bearing cost of deposits, and the overhead is the non-direct cost of deposits. So you have loan yields minus losses minus cost of deposits minus overhead is what equals your banking profits. And then you take all of that and multiply it by your leverage rate. Now, this is a simplification. Obviously, the leverage rate is going to affect your loan yields and your loan losses, but it's not going to affect your cost of deposits because you're not paying 10 times your cost of deposits because the cost of deposits are much lower. So instead of paying 1% interest on $200 million in deposits, you're only paying 1% interest on $20 million in deposits. So you don't have $2 million of interest cost. You only have $200,000 of interest cost. So these numbers are approximate the leverage rate will distort what those numbers are, 
But the main piece you can think on a simplified basis is that your profits are loan yields minus losses minus cost of deposits minus overhead. And all of that is multiplied by the leverage rate. So the way that you analyze banks is you need to focus on these terms, focus on their deposits, focus on the cost of those deposits. How much does it take to bring those deposits in, both the direct interest cost and the overhead? And then you need to understand their loans. Who are they making loans to? What are the yields on those loans? What are the losses on those loans? Are those loans going to increase in losses during a recession? Vast majority of banks will have higher losses during a recession than during a a growing economy. You need to be aware of that. But these are the key concepts that drive how a bank makes money. Future episodes will talk about um, the leverage rate, which leverage rates are safe, um, how to evaluate whether banks overcapitalize, undercapitalize, how to make those decision points on whether a bank should be avoided because of their loans, all of those types of things. The point of this podcast is simply to focus on what is the basic bank business model. And so I want to close with the banking is the business of bringing in deposits and lending them out, which means that banking is a perfect example of a capital intensive business. A bank cannot grow unless it receives capital in the form of deposits. Deposits are the lifeblood of a bank, and only through healthy deposit growth can a bank sustainably grow loans and therefore its profits. So thank you for listening to today's podcast. The full show notes for today's episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 79. I will include a link to the Banker movie in the show notes as well, so you can check that movie out if you have access to Apple TV+. Or it will link to the show and you can consider signing up for Apple TV Plus if that is something you choose to do. I don't endorse Apple TV Plus, but I did enjoy the movie itself. So please remember this is a listener-supported podcast. If you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at DIYinvesting.org. That's P-A-T-R-O-N. Final note, if you're listening on YouTube, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you're listening to the podcast side of things, be sure to hit the subscribe button and leave myself a rating and review. Your five-star rating and reviews help me to grow the podcast audience. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.